reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 to 25. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not fill, Built and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there 
that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. May the Lord help us to hear his word. Kathleen, thanks for reading scripture for us. Uh, can we join our hearts in prayer? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a redeeming God. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts, help us to respond to you with trust, with love, with obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, two weeks ago, when I preached on Deuteronomy 1 to 4, you know, I talked about uh, what, what we say to our kids. Right? You know, obey uh, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. You know, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. And if you think about that, the, the, the first two things, right, obey right away, all the way, uh, I, I feel that that's not enough, right? You know, the, the last part of that sentence is really, really crucial, you know, with a happy heart. Why, you know, why, why do I say that? You know, because as a parent, you know, it's often easy to uh, manipulate, especially when your kids are younger, it's, it's easy to manipulate kind of obedience, right, you know, through bribery, like, Ian, I'll give you Milo if you just obey, you know, so I'll give you a nice cup of Milo, or, you know, threats, right? No TV, like forever, you know, if you disobey. So, you know, we, we manipulate obedience through bribery, through threats. But we know as parents that that's, that's not what we really want. Right? I mean, we want not just mere obedience, but we want the hearts of our children. No, we, we want them to, to, to do what they do out of their hearts, not, not just externally conforming to what we call them to do. So, obey with a happy heart. What does God want from us? You know, what, what does God want from us? You know, many of us are at church regularly. We read our Bibles, we pray, you know, we attend Bible studies, we serve in church, and we even tell other people about Christianity now and then. But is being a Christian just about doing these things? You know, are, are these things all that what, you know, simply what God wants from us? You know, is it just these things? Someone asked Jesus a similar question once. You know, this person came up to Jesus and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? You know, it's like, you know, if you think about all the things that God requires of us, which, which is the most important one? You know, what, what does it all come down to in the end? What does Jesus say to this person? You know, some of you may already know the answer. Jesus answered the question by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which is the passage of our sermon today. Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So what God desires of us is not that we do many, many things for Him. No, what God really desires of us is that we love Him. That we really love Him. And not just love Him externally, but love Him from our hearts. From our hearts. With our entire being given to Him in love. Now, God wants our hearts. 
You know, like a good parent, he doesn't just want external obedience. He wants our hearts. Now, as John Piper has famously said, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, when we love Him completely. So what does it mean to love God? I think Deuteronomy 6 gives us you know, three handles of what loving God looks like. So let's dive in and, and think about these three things, about what it means to love God. Number one, we love God because we know God. Have you, been, have you ever been on a blind date? <laughs> you know, blind dates are a bit nerve-wracking, right? Because you, you, know, you, you know, maybe you like this person, maybe not, but you don't know, right? You show up for the date and hope for the best, right? Blind date. Uh, God doesn't take us on blind dates, right? I mean, he, he reveals Himself to us so that we know Him. And then by, by knowing Him, we, we love Him. You know, I got married to Claire 14 years ago. And you know, when, when we got married 14 years ago, I thought I loved her. But now I know I really love her. And it's not because things, you know, it's not because uh, I've changed or my commitment has changed, but no, but, but because just knowing more of her, you know, knowing the depth of her character, knowing, knowing the, the beauty of her person, and not just physical beauty, but real beauty of her person. You know, I, f- I found that I love her more now than I did 14 years ago, simply because I know her better. In the same way, the more we know God, the more we love Him. You know, our love for God isn't blind. Our love for God is based on how He Himself has made, him, made Himself known to us. You know, he, he tells us what He's like. He, he shows us what He's like in action, in, in redemption, so that we know and love Him. You know, verse 4 is one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. The, the Jews call it the Shema, which means hear, which is the first word of the verse, hear. So Israel must hear this truth about God, to know who God is. So what does the Shema tell us about God? God is unique and undivided. You know, the Lord is one. He is unique and incomparable. There's no other like Him. He, he alone is worthy of all of our worship. No, he's also undivided. You know, the Lord is not soft. Two persons. I mean, he's not like two characters, right? He's, he's undivided in his character. He has integrity. He is consistent and true to himself. You know, his heart is not kind of mixed. But he's always faithful to his word and to his purposes. You know, this, this God is one. He's unique and undivided. This God is also a covenant-keeping God. You know, look, at, look at what it says, the, the Lord, our God. And, you know, the word Lord, all caps, Lord, it's really the covenant name of God, Yahweh. You know, this is the name that God revealed to Israel when He redeemed Israel from Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, God is saying that I am this God who makes a covenant and I'm a God who keeps covenant with His people. You know, our, our marriages are a picture of this covenant. You know, our marriages point to this covenant that God has made to, to bind Himself to a people. The third thing we know about God, God is a personal God. You know, look again at what verse 4 says, the Lord, our God. The Lord, our God. That's the language of relationship. That's the language of uh, being in re- being, being, knowing this God personally. Right? Friends, this, this glorious God, this unique, true, faithful covenant-making, promise-keeping God, you know, He's not far away from us. He doesn't just sit in the heavens and fold His arms and kind of wait for us to do something. 
No, this God draws near to us. No, this God has come near to us, especially through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this God has drawn near to us and has redeemed us to be His people so that we might be His people and He might be our God. You know, you ever, you ever realize how precious it is that we can actually pray our Father in heaven? It's a, it's a wonderful term of endearment that we know this God and He's ours. You know, theology means the study of God. Right? You know, we, sometimes when we hear the word theology, we, uh, we, we get a bit uh, intimidated. Right? Well, theology, that's a, that's a big word. But in verse 4, you know, we have really deep and rich theology. You know, we've just done a very quick study of God in verse 4. You know, this is who God is. But the point of theology is not simply to give us more knowledge about God. You know, we're not just studying the Bible so that we have lots of Bible knowledge. In fact, you know, too much, you know, this knowledge can be a dangerous thing because knowledge can make us proud. Knowledge puffs up. But, really, but rather, we, we study about God so that we know Him and we love Him. Now, just knowing a lot about God doesn't change our lives, but knowing God for who He is, knowing Him as our God, I mean, that is transformational. You know, that, that, that changes how we view ourselves, that changes how we view life, because we know who God is. So we've got to think about how we can turn our knowledge about God and really turn it to knowledge of God so that we know Him and love Him. Now, Jerry Packer wrote these very helpful words. You know, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God. You know, we're thinking about these things. We're reflecting on them, leading to prayer and praise to God. I think this, this is a wonderful exhortation to, to even pray through the Bible, right? to pray through the Psalms. God, I, I'm reading these things about you in the Psalms. I want to pray back your word to you because I am taken by who you are. And I want my heart to be moved by who you are. Not, not just to know about who you are, but to really allow my whole person to be moved to love you for who you are. That's what it means to, to really know God. So theology must lead to doxology. I mean, the two are inextricably connected. Theology must lead to doxology. Knowing the truth about God must lead us to adore God. And this is the point of the Shema, verse 4. God wants us to respond to His truth. How? By loving Him entirely and exclusively. So it's no coincidence that verse 5 follows verse 4. Right? You, you hear the truth about God. Yes, God, you are one. You are our God. Therefore, we shall love you. We shall love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. You know, th this is the only right response to this God. Right? The only right response to this amazing God is to love Him, to give Him our all. There's no other right response but to love Him. This one true God has graciously redeemed us from sin and death through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has bound Himself to us. You know, in, in a sense, He's married Himself to us in a covenant relationship that can never be broken. 
You know, this God is our God and we are His people. So I pray that you know, as, as, we, as we learn these truths about God, that our hearts will be moved, not just our minds, not just our intellects, but our hearts will be moved towards Him in affection, in joy, in rest and comfort. Now, what does it mean? How do we tell if we, if we know God in this way? Now, what does that look like? I think Scripture tells us that people who truly know God in this way, who love God, their lives are characterized by love. Love for God, love for one another. Their lives are characterized by faith. You know, we trust God. We, we rest in Him, even amidst life's struggles and trials. The people who love God, their lives are characterized by hope because they know that, that, that the only thing that keeps them going, that, keeps them, that, that helps them wake up in the morning is this hope that they have that this God is theirs and that He has promised and He will keep His promises. Now again, Packer observes this of people who truly know God. He writes, you know, these people, you know, people who truly know God, they have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They have great boldness for God, you know, the, the faith in God that drives us to be bold for Him, you know, to do things for Him, to, to give our lives for Him. It's boldness for God. And people who love God, who know God, have great contentment in God through the different seasons of life. So we know God in order to love Him. Second point, we love God by avoiding distractions. And we see this in verses 10 to 19. When we think about loving God, you know, oftentimes our love for God is distracted. Right? Our hearts are prone to wander away from God. You know, this God who loves us, but we don't always love Him back as we ought. Why, why, why do we have distracted hearts? You know, like the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, you know, we can do many of the right things, and yet abandon our first love. So in, in, in these verses 10 to 19, Moses warns of three distractions that draw us away from loving God. So number one, the distraction of prosperity. You know, the land was God's gracious gift to Israel. You know, God kept His promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You now if you look at verse 10 to 11, uh, you know, do, do you notice a repeated phrase in those two verses? Just, look at, just, just glance at it, those two verses. You see any repeated phrase? No? You did not. You did not. Now that's, that's a repeated phrase in verses 10 to 11. What, what, is that, what does that emphasize? Israel did not do anything to earn the promised land. You did not. You did not. You did not. Now Israel did not do anything to deserve entry and dwelling in the promised land. The, the land was entirely God's gracious gift to Israel. It wasn't because Israel was such a good nation. It wasn't because they were morally upstanding people. Or it wasn't because they were more attractive than the rest of the nations. No, it was entirely God's grace to them. But the danger is, you know, God tells Israel, when we eat and are full, what happens? We have the tendency to care more about the gifts and the giver. <laughs> right. I think that happens a lot in our lives. You know, let me give you an example. You know, I, I could be, pr you, know, I, you know, imagine I'm looking for a job. I, I pray really hard, you know, God, please, please give me a job. You know, I, I really need a job. 
and I'm, I'm unemployed, I, re- I really need a job to, to earn a living to provide. So I pray really hard for a job. And God in His grace, in His mercy, He provides me a job. Great. You know, so I start work. Work goes really well. You know, I'm enjoying my work. My colleagues are great. Uh, my, my boss appreciates me. Work's going really well. And then work gets really busy. Work's, work begins to, to dominate in my life. Now, work begins to, to be all that I think about. Waking, sleeping, at home, when I'm with my kids. Work is all that I can think about. Now, and over, over time, work just begins to be the center of my life. My, my life begins to revolve around my work. Can you see what's happened? You know, I, I pray for a job. God in His grace provides me with work. I mean, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that work is a bad thing. Work is a great thing. It's a good thing. It's a good gift from God. But our hearts, because our hearts are prone to wonder, this gift eclipses the giver of that gift. That's what prosperity often does to us. Right? We, it's not just work. You know, things like marriage, children, uh, even this physical building that God has so graciously given to us. You know, even good gifts like these can begin to eclipse the giver of the gifts. Prosperity, comfort, and convenience can be spiritually dangerous. You know, that's something that we don't often hear, right? We, we always assume that prosperity is always a good thing. But it's not. It's not always a good thing. Scripture warns us actually of the danger of prosperity, of comfort, of convenience. No, these things actually make it difficult for us to trust God. Right? It's, I can say from experience that it's harder to trust God when life is good. I love this verse from Proverbs, or these two verses from Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. The, the, the right, the, that, that man in Proverbs, as he writes these verses, he says, Feed me with the food that is needful for me. You know, feed me what's enough. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Right, it's, e- it's easy to take grace for granted. We become proud and self-sufficient because we think, hey, everything's going well. You know, I, I, ca- I can do what I want to do. You know, I- I'm in control of my own life. Great, why, why do I need God? Why do I need to rely on Him? You know, God says in verse 12, take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord. You know, He's the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Or, or this equivalent verse in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What, what do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it from God, why do we boast as if we did not receive it? Right? It's a great, great parallel verse, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. So the distraction of prosperity, how good times kind of draw our hearts away from God. Second distraction, distraction of idolatry. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. No, Israel was set apart to be a holy nation, but they were constantly tempted to look like the other nations by worshipping their gods. You know, and, and the lure of idolatry is greater than we realise. You know, sometimes we think idols are just things that we bow down to, right? like physical images. You know? And some of us have left that life behind when we became Christians. 
But idols are not just physical images that we make, that we display in our homes. An idol is anything that becomes more important to us than God. An idol is anything that we hold more dear than God. I know I have idols in my life because I know that there are things in my life that I hold more dear than God. An idol is whatever we trust in to give us things like value, happiness, security, and meaning. That's why good things can become idols, right? Good things like marriage, good things like children, good things like academic achievements, good things like careers, possessions, health, wealth, even Christian ministry. (laughs) These things have the possibility, the potential to become idols when we love them more than we love God. When, when we try to find our value and worth and significance in them rather than in God himself. You know, these things become idols when they control and drive our lives. When, when our lives begin to revolve around them rather than around God. You know, we, we, look for these, we look to these things for happiness, for peace of mind and significance. You know, think about it, what, what are the gods of the peoples around us? Right? I mean, what are the gods of the peoples around us? You know, what, are, what are the idols of this culture in which we live? Just, just think about it for a moment. You know, what are the gods? Not, not physical gods, actually. What do people really worship? You know, even if people worship a physical god, they're not actually worshipping the physical god. They're worshipping what the physical god they think gives them. So what are the gods of the people around us? Comfort, power, pleasure, reputation, a name for ourselves, significance, security, success. And and if you think about the gods of the peoples around us, they're actually not very strange to us. Why? Because we worship the same gods. we, We give our lives to these same idols as well if we forget the Lord. No, we, we, must, we must confess that we often want the same things as the culture wants. And in fact, this idolatry is respectable. Right? I mean, to, to, to want these things is respectable in the culture. And, and when we want these same things, we become respectable in the culture as well. This is how we fit in into Singapore life. So you can, you can see how tempting idolatry is to God's people, because this is how we fit in to the world. But God is a jealous God. God has committed himself to us in marriage. He is our bridegroom. We are his precious bride. He calls us to love him alone. Not not because he's a domineering husband. No, because he he is the perfect husband. He says, I am jealous for your good. And, and I want you to know and love me because this is what's good for you. you know, God, God is a jealous God who desires us. He wants us to find in Him our complete life, our joy, our security and significance. 
And unlike the idols that we often worship, this God really delivers. This God truly gives us these things. Even more than that, this God gives us Himself. You know, he's far better than the idols that we often give ourselves to. Third distraction, distraction of unbelief. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. You know, Massa is this place that was mentioned in Exodus 17, I think. Uh, so at Massa, Israel grumbled against the Lord. You know, it says, God, you, know, you brought us into this wilderness to kill us. There's no water here. You just want us to die. You know, so, so that was Israel at Massa. I, I, I can relate to that. They doubted His goodness. And in their unbelief, they, they challenged God. You know, say, you know, they said something like, to, to, to this effect, to God. Right? God, if you really love us, you do something for us. You know, God, if you are really God, you're going to give us this. Otherwise, we're not going to follow you. Right? They, they tested God. You know, so they, they challenged God to prove Himself. Right? So if you, you say you're God, right? Prove yourself. I mean, that's what it means to test God because of unbelief. Now, do we find it hard to obey God? We struggle with obedience. I know I, know I do. You know, sometimes the, living the Christian life can feel like pulling teeth. Sorry to the dentist in the room. <laughs> you know, what, what's the answer to that, right? You know, if, you, if you're struggling with obedience, you know, you say, oh, it's really, really difficult. Oh, I really don't want to obey. You know, it's, it's really, really hard. What do you do? Should you just like kind of grit your teeth and say, just try harder, just try harder, you know, just, just do it, you know? Is, is that the, the answer to obedience? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that it is. You know, again, think about, think about this. We need to know God for who He truly is so that our hearts are captured by His glorious goodness. You know, we obey God not simply by gritting our teeth. We obey God by knowing Him for who He truly is so that our hearts go towards Him. We love Him. And obedience is fueled by this love for God. You know, unbelief makes us disobey God because we, we don't trust God. We don't trust that His way is good for us. That, that's unbelief. Now, disobedience seems more attractive because I think I'm happier if I do these things. But if I truly trust God, if I know Him, if I trust Him, then I know that His ways are good, not just for His glory, but for my good. And that makes obedience more natural. We, we obey because we know this is really for our good. Why do we know it's for our good? Because we trust God, because He said so. Now, this, this is like parenting, right? Like, like if, a, if a child trusts his father, he would do what his father tells him to do because he trusts that his father has his best interests at heart. Right? If, if I say to Zach and Ian, do this, you know, trust me, I, I hope that they respond well because they know me, they know my character, and they're, they're willing to kind of put their own desires aside and say, okay, I, I trust you, I'm going to do what you say. Because there's a relationship of trust. So that's what loving God looks like. As we obey Him, as we know Him, we will obey Him, we will love Him. That's why God tells us in verse 18, you, know, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. That it may go well with you. you know, there is blessing in obedience. You know, God doesn't promise us an easy life, but He promises us true blessing. 
as we know him, love him, and follow him. And now he calls us. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust that I'm a loving father who has your interests at heart? Finally, number three, we love God by teaching others to love him. So we've seen so far that the Lord our God is one, he is good, and he alone is worthy of our worship, our adoration, and our love. And if our hearts love God, we will want to tell others about him so that they love him as well. You know, we're to pass on the truth about God to the next generation. As it says in verse 7, you shall teach them, children, the next generation, you should teach them diligently to your children. Let me address the, the parents here among us. I think a lot of us are parents. Well, parents, God has entrusted to us the responsibility of not just providing for our children physically, but we have the responsibility to disciple our children in the ways of the Lord. You know, we are our children's primary disciples. You know, we, we have to teach God's word diligently to them. You know, what does it mean? It means speaking God's truth to them regularly, consistently, and intentionally. You know, we, we need to ensure that we ourselves are, are walking in God's ways. So that when, when I come to my two sons, I, I'm, I'm telling them, not just do as I say, but live as I live. Right? I, need, I need to ensure that I myself are, are, are faithful, am, am faithful, faithfully following God so that I am exemplifying to my sons what following God looks like. Now, I'm walking in God's ways myself. And I'm equipping myself to know God and love Him so that I can encourage my two boys to know God and love Him as well. Now, this is what it means for parents to, to love God and to, to pass on this truth about God and loving Him to their children. I want to, uh, again, like Claire, Claire announced earlier during the service that there is a book table downstairs with really good resources on parenting. Whether you've been a parent, whether you're a new parent, or you've been a parent for a really long time, I mean, those are excellent resources to kind of look at. And it's, it's downstairs in the fellowship hall, so head down after the service and you know, check out some of the books. In fact, some of the books, I've recommended a list of parenting books in your ministry guide. So if you look in your ministry guide, there's a list of recommended resources, and some of those are available downstairs. Uh, and I do have this book, Instructing a Child's Heart, which is an excellent resource for parenting. Uh, who would like this free book? Anyone? First come, first up. Just don't be shy. Come on, put up your hands. Singaporeans like free stuff, right? Come on, just put it up. Great. You must, you must be a parent, okay? And, uh, and, you, and you must agree to write a review of this in e-news. <laughs> There's no free books, okay? I mean, just a short review. I mean, just to encourage the rest of the church. So anyone? Free book. Well, no, no more hands. <laughs> anyone? Anyone? Who? Okay, come. Can you write a book review as well? <laughs> okay, end of the commercial break. Okay, so, so far I've addressed the parents, how we have the responsibility to disciple. And the church, the rest of us, you know, we are a 
spiritual family. And we're called to bear one another's burdens, including the burden, the responsibility of discipling our children. I think as a church, we want to communicate to the parents in our midst that this is not a job for them alone. We come alongside them as a church community, helping them, encouraging them. One of the best ways to do that is to get to know one another's children. You just approach them, you know, get, get to know the children for who they are, not just so-and-so's kids. <laughs> you know, don't, don't go up to kids and say, oh, I know you, you're so-and-so's kids. No, I mean, get to know them for who they are. And, uh, and build relationships with the children in our midst. You know, I've been really encouraged by how Zachary and Ian enjoy coming to church. I mean, that, that's just great for me. It's so encouraging to hear that from them. Why? Because they have friends here. And, and their friends are not just kids of their same age, but, but their friends are all of you. They know some of the youths, they know the young adults, they know some, some of you all who are older. I mean, it's so encouraging for me to know that Zachary and Ian have friends that span the generations. And I want them to really experience church in that way, to experience church as a family and not simply as something that we drag them to on Sundays. And I, I pray that the children of this church, GBC, We'll grow up experiencing church as community. Not church, not church as a place or an event on Sundays, but church as a people, as a community. A, a, a church as a place where there are deep, nourishing relationships. Not just with my peers, but with people older and younger than me. Now, I pray that we as a church would not just focus on correcting outward behaviour. But I pray that we as a church would focus on shepherding hearts. Because remember, God, God wants us to love Him. God doesn't just want us to obey Him externally. So, so as, as a church, we need to shepherd the hearts of our children towards God. Not just calling for external conformity to a list of do's and don'ts or just look like this. But to really encourage their hearts to know God and to trust Him. I mean, that, that's, that's our responsibility as a church. We have the responsibility to shepherd the hearts of the children whom God has entrusted to us. I just want to say thank you to the parents who you know, bring kids into the service and, and who sit through the service. I mean, I'm, I'm so encouraged that you take the time and effort to do that. You know, I, I speak to some parents and you know, I honestly... For some parents, it's easier to just stay at home because it's, it's a lot of work to bring younglings into church. So I just want to appreciate the parents you know, that, that you make sacrifices, you make the effort to do that, and that's really, really encouraging. And I would say that the, the, the best way for parents to disciple their children is that they themselves are disciple. And that's why you want to be in service. That's why you want to hear God's word regularly so that that's equipping you to care for your children as God's called you to care for them. So, so just thank you for being here. And I want to thank the rest of the church as well. I know having kids in service isn't always easy. Perhaps it's not the most convenient thing for some of us. But I just want to thank you as a church. As you bear with you know, maybe slightly increased levels of sound, <laughs> that, that's a way in which you show self-sacrificial love to the families in our midst. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, that's really encouraging. So, so do press on in doing that. Because you know, when we do that as a church, it communicates to the families that we love them. 
that, that these are children, they're not just noise boxes, <laughs> but they're children. And we want to love them, we want to disciple them, and we want to fold them into this community to really help them to know Jesus and to love Him. So thank you for doing that, church. I want to pray that we continue to do this more and more. So what does passing on the truth look like? You know, Deuteronomy says, it's meant to happen through ordinary conversations in everyday life. Okay, verse 7. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You know, that, that's just the language of everyday life. You know, sitting, walking, when you go to sleep, when you're awake. Right? It's, it happens through the fabric of your daily lives. So discipleship doesn't only happen in a program. You know, discipleship doesn't only happen here in a worship service. Discipleship doesn't only happen at Sunday school or during Bible studies or even during your family devotions. Those are not the only times that discipleship happens. If our faith is real, if our faith is genuine, it will show up in our daily lives. We will talk about spiritual matters on the way to school, on the way to work. We will talk about spiritual matters in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, as we sit at our dining tables and we ask one another, how was your day? If we are intentional about discipling our children, then, then we'll begin to notice all these opportunities in daily lives. We, we won't wait for a program, but we'll see that God has given to us many, many opportunities in daily life to speak truth into the lives of our children. You know, even this morning, I was, I was sitting in the living room before coming to church with Zach. You know, he was asking me, oh, why did you, why would you, why did you work as a journalist before? You know, what was that about? So we just talked about that for a while. Then suddenly, out of the blue, he just asked me, uh, why did you become a Christian? <laughs> like, wow, thank you, God. <laughs> So you never know when children will ask us you know, these questions. And that's what discipleship is meant to look like. You know, we're meant to be in the lives of our children enough so that they have opportunity to ask us these questions and we have opportunity to answer them. So you never know when these opportunities come up. You, know, you can talk about spiritual matters. God gives us these opportunities along the way as we sit, as we walk, as we lie down, as we rise. And to pass on God's truth, we must keep God's truth close at hand. That's what it says in verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Right? I'm not saying that we literally put Scripture on our hands or between our eyes. I know some priests in the Old Testament, they did that. But I think that the idea of this is that Scripture is always in front of us. Right? As we raise our hands, we see Scripture between our eyes is right there, you know, that our, our attention is always given to it. It just means that Scripture should be in our lives, every aspect of our lives. It's ever close to us. You know, we don't keep God's Word on the shelf and not read it, but it's always in our lives. We're reading it and living out of its truth. When we live out God's truth in every part of our lives, you know, look at verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Doorposts of house, even that's where we live, right? Gates actually refer to the place of business, the place of politics, the, the place of civil government in Israel. So basically what, what Moses is saying is that in the privacy of your homes, as well as in public life, 
in your work, you know, in, in government, in society, in your neighbourhood, in your community, in your housing estate. These are places where you live out the Word of God. So, so are we living as Christians from Monday to Saturday? Right? I mean, that's what Moses is saying, right? Are we living as God's people from Monday to Saturday? We keep it real by allowing God's truth to permeate and saturate every part of our lives. Individual, family, private, public, home, school, home, work. Every part of our lives is saturated with God's truth. And this is how we love God with all our heart, soul, and might. You know, when, when we do all these things, right? You know, if, if we're living these ways, you know, our children, not just our biological children, but children in this community, children are always going to ask this question. You know, what's the, what's the one question that children always ask? Why? <laughs> right? Why? Which is exactly the question in verse 20. What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, right? So Moses assumes that if the Israelites are living this way, it's very natural for the kids to ask them, hey, mom and dad, why do you live this way? Why do you love God? Why do you obey Him? And you notice, you know, children will only ask this question if mom and dad are actually living this way, right? If mom and dad are not living this way, there's no reason for the children to ask the mom and dad why they're living this way. So if the mom and dad are faithfully living out the truth of God's word, the children will begin to take notice. The children will begin to ask, hey, why? Why do we live this way as a family? Why do you do these things? What, what's, what's the reason? So what should we say when our children ask why? You know, these, these are bad reasons. <laughs> like, go to your room. <laughs> or, don't ask, just I told you so. Or, you know, come on, other people will talk if you don't live this way. Come on, so, so live this way. Or you just need to obey. You know, or, or God and I will be upset if you don't. <laughs> or, you know, just, just do it. You know, this is what a good Christian looks like. Just do it. You know, don't ask questions. How will we answer our children when they ask us why? You know, these, these reasons are not good reasons. Why? Because we're not trying to raise good Pharisees. We're, we're trying to raise children who truly know God and love Him from the heart, not just external conformity, but children who really love God and know Him. So, so what does Moses say we should say to our kids when they ask us? What should we say? Look at the next few verses. It's an, it's an interesting response. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. It's an interesting reply, right? Why do we live this way? Why do we love God? Why do we obey him? Ah, because he loved us first. Why do we love God? Why do we obey him? Because he saved us. Because he's rescued us. Because you know, when my two sons ask me, my response to them should be, because your dad was a slave to sin. Your dad was an undeserving sinner. And, and Christ, by his grace and mercy, reached down and plucked me from sin and death and saved me. That's why we love God and obey him. That's the response that we should give 
to our children. In other words, we, we must speak of the God who saves. We, we give grace to our children by pointing them not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ, because He's the only one who can save them. And, and parents, adults, we must first understand ourselves to be undeserving sinners who are entirely saved by God's grace. Now, that Christ's love must fill our own hearts. Remember what Jesus says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. No, as, as, as parents, we need to understand ourselves as having been forgiven much by a really generous Saviour. And if so, we will love Jesus and others and we will show our children the same patient, persevering grace and love that Christ has shown us. Now, we, we cannot change our children. We, we cannot save them. None of us can do that. Only Jesus can. And our responsibility is to reflect Christ's love and grace to our children. I know that some of us are grieved by how some of our children have turned away from the Lord. And Moses' reply is an encouragement to us. He says, don't lose heart. Because our God is a redeeming God. Our God has saved us. He is still saving a people for Himself and He is able to save. So we don't have to lose heart because we worship a God who is able to raise the dead. We worship a God who delights in welcoming prodigals home. We worship a God whose compassion and grace is scandalous. We, we, we even struggle to take in His grace and compassion. And this God has given His own Son, His obedient Son, to save wayward sons and daughters like us. So don't trust in our parenting ability. Trust in Christ. He's our strength. He's our confidence. He's our hope. This, this Christ has redeemed us and we need Him. Our, our children need Him. So let's unite our hearts and, and really pray for ourselves and for our sons and daughters to know and love Jesus. Abraham's parents are strong believers who raised their children faithfully. When Abraham was 19, he, stopped, he decided to stop pretending that he was a Christian. So Abraham started living in open sin. You know, he was getting drunk. I think he was probably doing drugs as well and sleeping around. You know, you can, as, as you can imagine, his, Abraham's parents were heartbroken you know, and they were perplexed. You know, they think, gosh, didn't we raise him faithfully? Like, what happened? Why is Abraham living this way? I mean, they're just brokenhearted. But in God's grace, God graciously intervened in Abraham's life and several years after that open rebellion, he, he became a Christian. And, and Abraham wrote these words after he became a Christian. Says your, your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or pornography or laziness or crime or cussing or slobberliness or homosexuality or being in a punk rock band. The real problem is that they don't see Jesus clearly. The best thing you can do for them is to show them Christ. It's not a simple or immediate process, but the sins in their life that distress you and destroy them 
will only begin to fade away when they see Jesus more like he actually is. This is Abraham Piper, son of John Piper and Noel Piper. Friends, what does God want of us? He wants us to love Him. Why does He want us to love Him? Because God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want our external obedience, but He wants our hearts. And He says in verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. No, but how can we love and obey God in this way? How can we love God from the heart? We can't. We need new hearts. Who can give us new hearts? Who can give us hearts that really love God? Can we change our own hearts? We can't. But God can. And God is able to give us new hearts. He's also able to give our children new hearts through His Son and by His Spirit. Friends, we, we need Jesus to save us and to give us new hearts. We, our children need Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to work powerfully by His Spirit in our lives, in our children's lives, so that we might know Him and love Him with our entire being. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are such a loving Father to us. And Father, as we come to you, we acknowledge that we did not deserve this. We, don't, we did not deserve you. We have done nothing to earn our way into your presence. But you have been gracious to us. You have opened up the way to come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And indeed, we confess He is our only hope. He is our only hope. He is the only hope for our children. And so, Father, we pray that you might be pleased to work powerfully in our midst. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We commit our children to you. We pray that you would work in us by your Spirit. We pray that your Spirit would take away spiritual death. We pray that your Spirit would give life and light by your Word. Oh, we pray that we as a church would know you and love you for who you truly are. We pray this especially for our children. We pray that as we disciple them along the way, as we speak to them the glorious truths of Christ, we pray that you might be merciful to them, that you would open their hearts. Oh Lord, we pray that you would reveal Jesus to them. Oh Lord, how we need you. So work in us by your powerful grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's rise and sing a song of response. I will glory in my Redeemer.
today is taken from Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Have a time of silent meditation. You are dismissed. Thank you for joining us for our service. <laughs> 